to know that we are really glad you're here. And uh, I say this a lot, but I'm going to say it again, is we want this to be a safe place for you to come and be yourself, but also to a place where you're free to struggle uh, and to not have to have it all together. And also a place where you're free to struggle with Christianity, meaning um, you might not be uh, sure where you fall out on Christianity. We want to be a place where you can come and ask questions, uh, but also in, you know, a safe place, and we want to give you space to figure out what you believe about uh, the Bible and what you believe about Jesus. And so wherever you are tonight, thanks for coming. Um, welcome to RUF. I'd love to meet you after RUF uh, if you come up and introduce yourself. I'd love that. We're going to be looking at several different passages. We are in over halfway, it's hard to believe, after tonight, three RUFs left, which is crazy to think about, but we are well past halfway in our study of the book of Revelation, and the last few weeks we have been in some rather intense (laughs) portions in the book of Revelation, and unfortunately, we're going to be there again tonight. Uh, tough sledding tonight. Very hard passage, uh, but I want to give you some hope. The last three weeks, we've been talking about a war, a spiritual war. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about a wedding, so it's going to get better, uh, I promise. Tonight, though, we find ourselves uh, again in a very difficult passage, Revelation 17 and 18. And you need to know that it is difficult and very shocking because John, that's the purpose. John is trying to wake us up. God is actually being gracious to you tonight by giving you this passage because He is trying to shake us out of our slumber and out of our complacency. In an effort to do that, He gives us this very Uh, shocking, gory, sexually explicit passage in Revelation 17 and 18. Tonight we're going to look at, it's really one vision, okay? 17 and 18, uh, chapter 17 and 18 is one vision in the book of Revelation. We're going to just look at portions of that and try to get uh, to the meaning of the passage. And I want to remind us that this is not something John made up. John was given this revelation by God himself. And what John sees, he actually gives to us tonight on the pages of Scripture. I just think that's important to say. And so with that in mind, let me pray. Let me ask God to help us again tonight. Father, my prayer is that No one in this room would think for a moment that they don't need to hear what's in this passage tonight. Father, my prayer for us in this room that no one would say, I've heard this all before. Father, come through your Spirit. Do not leave us in a place of apathy towards our sin tonight. Father, I pray that you would wake us up. That you would shake us out of our slumber. 
I pray that you would give us light tonight. Shine light uh, on ourselves and on your word. Give us wisdom. Give us help. I pray that you would give grace in the preaching of your word so that we might see our sin but also see the greatness of our Savior. Father, we ask that you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A little over a year ago, the FDA actually changed its recommended dosage on one of the most popular sleep medications in our country, Ambien. It had been out for long enough on the market and enough people had used it, and so they had gotten enough feedback. Uh, And one of the things that they realized is that at the recommended dosage, that it sometimes would shut down people's short-term memory. And it would actually lead them to altered states of consciousness while they were still awake. For example, you probably, there are many stories out there like this. You might know of one as well. But I had a friend of mine who, uh, he traveled three or four nights a week. And so if you're in a hotel three or four nights a week, you're probably not sleeping well. And so he wasn't. And so he went to his physician and he said, you know, I I need something to help me sleep. And this is years ago. This is before all the studies came out. And the doctor prescribed him Ambien. And his first question was like, is this addictive? I don't, you know, I'm worried about this maybe being addictive. And the doctor looked and said, no, it's not. There's no psychological evidence that this is addictive. He said, but I do want to warn you, people do some pretty crazy things and have been known to do some pretty crazy things while taking Ambien. My friend said, what do you mean? He said, well, take me, for example. I take Ambien, the doctor. And he said, I have woken up in the morning and I have found an empty Papa John's pizza box and a steak and shake cup that's empty on my nightstand. And I have no memory and no recollection of how that got there. And so here's what happened. Evidently, in the middle of the night, he gets up goes to Steak and Shake, gets a milkshake and gets a large pizza, drinks the milkshake, eats the pizza, wakes up the next morning and has no idea that that even happened and doesn't remember it. That is crazy. (laughs) And it's really pretty amazing. And because of stories like that, it actually led the FDA to change the recommended dosage of Ambien and to tweak it. Why do I tell you that story? Well, because in this passage, John shows us the effects of worldliness. And he comes to us tonight and he says that the world gives something to people that when they take it, it actually puts them in an altered state of consciousness. That the world comes and she gives you her wine And it makes you drunk, but you don't feel like you're drunk. And when we come to this passage, some of you are going to be tempted, lots of you are going to be tempted to look at this and to say, you know, I don't really think that's me. My friend needs to hear this, or so-and-so, man, I wish they were here, but this isn't me. I'm good. 
This is all of us. What is said in this passage is every single one of us in this room, we are all drinking deeply of the cup that is called the world. And she's powerful and she's seductive and she's full of pleasure and comfort and satisfaction. And throughout all of church history, she has been known as the whore of Babylon. Because she draws you in with her beauty and with her power and with her seduction. But oh, is she deadly. Because it has cost many people their lives. You see, John, and here's what I want us to see, as hard as this passage is, it is grace to you. And it's grace to me tonight because John comes and he gives us a view from 30,000 feet and he says, let me show you what this woman is really like and the horror and the destiny that awaits her. And so tonight we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at her identity, her description, and lastly, her destiny. Let's look at number one, her identity. Who's the woman? Verse 3, look at verse 3. The woman comes in riding on a red beast that has seven heads and ten horns. Most likely, if you were here last week, this is the beast from Revelation chapter 13. The first beast, the beast of the sea. Verse 4. She's not an ugly prostitute. She's attractive. She's not poor either. It says that she's adorned with jewels and fine clothing. And look, she's holding a cup. And in her hand is a golden cup full of the abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And I don't even want to dare to think of what that might be. But verse 5, it all becomes crystal clear, doesn't it? Because the identity, we are told by John in in verse 5, that her name written on her forehead is Babylon. Now the word Babylon has many denotations throughout the Bible, and the first one shows up in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Okay? Babel is a derivative, or Babylon is a derivative of the word Babel. Where does that uh, come from, or what happened at the Tower of Babel? Let me remind you. God created humanity in the early chapters of Genesis, and He created them to be signposts for His glory. They were to cultivate God's creation and to fill all of the earth with His glory. We get to Genesis chapter 11, and that's what's so tragic. Because humanity refused to do it. And instead of spreading the earth with God's glory, they decided that they were going to spread the earth with their glory. They were going to make a name for themselves. And so humanity builds in Genesis 11 this huge, large tower in order to draw attention to themselves. And they call it the Tower of Babel. And that is the beginning of the word Babylon. 
And so throughout the entire Bible, Babylon becomes the symbol for pride and for arrogance and for self-indulgence and for self-sufficiency and self-absorption and self-gratification. And so what is the whore of Babylon? Well, in a word, it's the intoxicant or the drug that the Bible calls worldliness. What is worldliness? Well, think about the definition of Babylon or Babylonian. Worldliness is when you are at the center of your own life. And all of your life is about what you want and about you getting what you want at the expense of other people. In other words, worldliness is when you are at the center instead of God. And I don't know about you, but I think that's extremely helpful when we think about worldliness. And here's why. We think about worldliness, and if you're like me, we, our knee-jerk reaction is to think of all the bad stuff. So we think worldliness, and we think of greed, and we think of somebody that abuses power and that's a monster in corporate America. Or we think of sexual immorality or drunkenness or really bad movies or filthy language and those are the worldly things. But what if it's much more subtle than that? For example, think about this. When you think that you're the most important person in the room... Or you think you're the most important person in the conversation. That is worldly. And we wouldn't say this out loud, but when we think that everyone notices what we wear, and everyone thinks our opinion is the most important, and we get mad and angry at our roommate or our friend for not noticing that we're having a bad day, that is worldly. Why? Because you're the center of your universe. Life is all about you. Or maybe it looks like this in your life. You have a string of really good days or maybe even a string of really good weeks where every, when you're killing it... <laughs> Everything is going great for you. You get that date to formal that you've been wanting to get. You knock the chemistry exam out of the park and you, you just you kill it. You crush it. Maybe you're a to-do list person and you just are plowing through all of your to-do lists. You don't fight with your roommate. You don't fight with your mom. All of your relationships are going well and you're being filled in community. Life couldn't be better. What happens to your spiritual life in those moments? Well, I can tell you what happens to mine. When life is going well and working for me, if you're like me, you start to feel competent. If you're like me, you fall into this altered state of consciousness and you start to slowly but surely push 
your maker and your creator God out of the center of your life and say, I got this. I needed you then when things weren't going well, but I'm good now. And so your prayer life starts to shrink. And you stop seeing your need for daily repentance in your life. What if that's the cup? What if that's the cup and the wine that the whore of Babylon is offering you tonight? Because you see, that's worldliness. Because you are pushing God out of your life and you're putting yourself in the center. And friends, I am amazed at how quickly self-sufficiency is the knee-jerk reaction in the default mode in my life. And at first glance, you look at that and you go, wow, that's not that big a deal. Remember, things are not as they seem. You say, that doesn't seem urgent. But from God's perspective, that is extremely high-risk behavior. Tim Keller tells a story about a college girl that he was counseling. Her name is Debbie. And he said Debbie came to see him and they met several times and he said Debbie would always go back to the fact and how frustrated and angry she was that she couldn't get a date. No one ever asked her out and it was week after week of expressing that frustration. And Keller finally said as gently as he could, he said, okay, I understand that, but you're a Christian. And so... Think about all the things that you have in Jesus. Jesus has adopted you as His daughter. Jesus gives you security and love and protection and guidance. And you know what she said? She looks at Keller and says, what good is all of that if I can't get a date? What good is all of that if I can't be popular? And you see, she showed her cards. She showed her hand. And what she revealed is that even her very faith was worldly. Why? Because it was all about her. She was coming to God to use Him rather than serve Him. She wasn't going to God to get God. She was going to God to get things from Him. And so my question is, what is it for you? What is the thing in your life that you look at God and you say, if I don't have blank, then what good is all this? That will reveal your worldliness. That's the first point. Her identity. Secondly, her description. How is she described? Look again at verse 1 and verses 4 and 5. We've, we've been down this road. Obviously, she's described as a prostitute. But she's alluring. She's A seductress, she draws you in. But here's the question, why in the world would God use this image to symbolize for us worldliness? 
Well, it's very clear here that there's way more that this is talking about than simply overt sexual sin. Something way deeper and bigger is at the heart of this. Let me try to explain. Throughout the Bible, God characterizes worldliness as prostitution. All throughout the Bible we see that. Why? Well, because at the, in the Bible it says that human beings, you, whether or not you're a Christian here tonight, that you were created in God's image. And being in, created in God's image, you were made for a relationship with Him. And the only way that life works is when you're in relationship with God. That's why Augustine said that all human beings have a God-shaped vacuum in their heart and they are restless until they find their rest in God. And because of that, when we go after other things at the exclusion of God, God says that we've done the same thing that a spouse does when they commit adultery. And that we actually become spiritual adulterers. But why the overly sexual language here? What is actually being communicated with that? Well, simply put... God, again, is being gracious to us to show us how sin actually works and how it lures us in. But it's doing something else. And and we've got to talk about this because it helps us get to the meaning of the passage. The Bible assumes that you are communicating something in sexual expression. In other words, the Bible assumes that there is way more going on in a sexual act than merely pleasure. And that's the way the world often thinks about sex. They put it in this one category called pleasure. But the Bible talks about it very holistically. And it says that sex actually binds you and unites you to someone else physically and emotionally and spiritually in the whole of your being. And so whether you intend to or not, you are actually communicating something with your body. What are you communicating? Well, you're actually saying, I will be with you forever. You're actually saying, you can trust me. You're saying, all that I have is yours. I will be here There is nothing that's ever going to stand between us. And the question, when you go back to the text, is can a prostitute say that to a lover? No. A prostitute can become one with a customer physically, but have no intention with being one with that person person in every area of their life because it's the essence and the nature of prostitution. It's a lie. A prostitute comes and sells love but doesn't care about you because all they want is your money. All they want is to use you. There's no joining together of lives and no trust being formed. And so with all of that information, do you see what John is saying? It's very powerful. Because what John is saying to us is that every time we have a fling with the world, that we actually become spiritual prostitutes. 
Because we were created for God and for God alone. And every time we give our lives at the exclusion and to the exclusion of Him, when we give our lives to things like pleasure and career and maintaining a certain body image and a social group and a relationship and being an insider and being popular and accomplishments, when we give our lives to those things to the exclusion of Him, We become a spiritual prostitute. Why? It's because we were never meant and created to derive our significance, our worth, and our identity from anything or anyone else other than God. And when we try to do so, it dehumanizes us and actually destroys us. But think about it like this, and I want to be clear on this point. Career, maintaining a healthy body, um, accomplishments, all those things that I just mentioned, those are good things. Okay? God created them for your enjoyment. They become bad things when you make and take those good things and make them ultimate things. You see, the problem comes is when they seduce you away from God and they actually become the driving force in your life and the thing that you live for. For example, sex is good. God's given it to you as a good gift. But when you make it the ultimate thing in your life and the thing that drives you and the thing that you live for, you become a pervert. Alcohol, a good gift from God that God's given for your enjoyment and as a gift. When it becomes the driving thing in your life, well, you become an alcoholic. People's approval. The Bible talks about having a good name. But when that becomes the driving thing in your life, well, then you become a flatterer. Money. Money's not bad. It's the love of money. It's when it becomes the driving thing in your life. When it becomes the driving thing in your life, you become greedy. Power can be a good thing. But when it becomes the driving thing in your life, you become a monster. And so here's a question. How do you know if you're being seduced by the world? How do you know if you're being deceived? I mean, do you know you're being deceived if you're being deceived? (laughs) So how do you know if you're drinking of this cup that this woman is holding? Well, you're drinking the cup of the world when you say, is it really that big a deal? Or... Yeah, surely it's not. I mean, God will forgive me. Or you're drinking the cup of the world when you say, I'm a senior. And this is my last chance to do all those things that I've always wanted to do. Or you're drinking the cup of the world when you say, eh, I really don't care. This is my life. I'm entitled to this. I'm going to make it count. I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to call my own shots. 
This is supposed to be my four years and I'll follow Jesus when I get out and settle down and have a family. Here's the problem with that. Is that is called Babylon. And it's nowhere in the Bible. You see, Thomas Brooks was an old theologian. And listen to what he said. One of Satan's devices is to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the golden cup, the cup of this woman, and to hide the poison. To present the sweet pleasure and the profit and to hide the sorrow and the shame and the loss. Look, I don't want to be saying this any more than you want to be hearing it. But God's called me to say it. And I love you. And here's what I want us to hear. Don't be duped. Friends, the whore of the world will come and promise her fidelity to you. She will come to you and say, I'll be with you forever. I really do love you. And then you wake up the next morning and what do you find? That you're just another customer that's been used and abused and taken advantage of. Because it's a sham. And it's a lie. And there's always a hook. No matter how nice and pretty and glamorous the bait looks. Her identity, her description, and lastly, her destiny. So what happens to the prostitute? Friends, this is... To me, this is the most sobering part of the passage, if you didn't think the other part was sobering. And very simply, what happens to her is she falls. Chapter 18, go read it. It's all about the fall of Babylon. And here's what I want you to see. How does that happen? Look at chapter 17. It's on your announcement sheet. 16 and 17. Look at those verses. They're amazing. You know how she falls? The very beast that she's riding in on actually turns on her and devours her. That'll sober you up in a hurry. And we really see it throughout the entire Bible. We see evil eat its own tail and the downfall of sinners is actually the sin itself. And the sin comes and actually has built within it its own judgment. Meaning that the punishment for sin is often more sin. And the punishment for your idols, and you building idols in your heart, is actually slavery. Because we think those idols are giving us life, and the Bible says those are the very things that actually enslave us. And so what do we do with all this? I actually forgot to put this in your handout, and I hate that I forgot that, but if you have a Bible, look at chapter 18, verses 4 and 5, or look on your phone, and I'm going to read it. It says, Come out of her, my people, 
Come out of the prostitute of Babylon, my people, lest you take part in her sins. And here's the point. It's all coming down. It's all crumbling. All the lies, all the self-promotion, all the self-indulgence and self-gratification and drunken nights and one-night stands and hookups, it's all coming down. It's falling, falling, falling. As we see in chapter 17 and 18, and God is coming, and listen, He's coming because He loves you and He's being merciful to you, and He's saying, wake up! Come out of your slumber. Come out of your apathy and your complacency. And He comes and He shakes us and He puts this sexually explicit, gory, shocking passage in front of us in order to say, come out! Leave the worldliness behind. And isn't that really what we all want? That's what I want. That's what I think you would look and say, that's what my friends need. That's what I need. That's what this campus needs. But here's the question. What is powerful enough to do it? What is powerful enough to break the hold that of the seduction that this woman has over us. Well, let me illustrate with this story. Several years ago, Susie and I, my wife, we went to Athens, Greece, and we went on a vision trip with RUF. One of the things you need to know about Athens, Greece, is prostitution is legal. And it's custom in that culture for a father to take his son at 15, 16 years old to see his first prostitute. And you also need to know that many of the women that are in these brothels and in prostitution are not there because they want to be. They're in slavery. Many of them, in between customers, are actually chained to the wall. Many of them are held there by fear, threatened in their own life if they were to leave, or threatened to be a public mockery. They would send pictures and things of them to their family members and to people in the community. And so shame often keeps them there. And while we were there, we learned about this ministry of women who actually goes into the brothels and ministers to these women and seeks to bring them out and rescue them and save them and give them dignity. Friends, that is the gospel. That is the only thing that has the power to break the seduction of the world in our lives. Because the gospel comes and says Jesus came down on, into earth and He entered the brothel of this world that is known as Babylon. And in doing so, He comes to us and came into this world, into your Babylon, in order to rescue you and to save you and to free you from your chains and from your slavery. That is the only thing that's going to break the chains is when you see Jesus entering your Babylon 
This is it. It's the only thing. You've got to see Jesus coming and taking all of the shame that you feel right now. Because he did. That's why he was crucified naked on a cross. Because nakedness is the word for shame in the Bible. That's why Jesus was naked, because he took your shame. He come in, came into the world and he takes your self-hatred and your guilt for all the things that you did last weekend and your darkness and your pain in order to rescue you and bring you out. And here's my question. Will you come out tonight? Will you leave her tonight? And will you run to your Savior who will never leave you, who will never forsake you, who will never use you, but will always love you and give you life. That's an invitation. Let's pray.